0: On today's More Than a Test, we have the CEO of the PAF Reading Program. Uh, you might know Magdalena from the PAF Reading Program or their Spanish counterpart, Aprendo Leendo, but she is joining us today from Argentina, where they are running an RCT in some of the most difficult and urban districts in Argentina. So it's a great conversation about all the things that we've learned about literacy, about how she went from being a lawyer to working in literacy, the expansion of PAF from New York to all across the California and 19 other states. It's a really, really fun conversation, super inspirational. And please stick around until you hear the story about the principal having students write lightly because they wanted to keep the notebooks year after year. This is one not to miss. Magdalena, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Lara, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: I am actually just totally thrilled because you're actually um, from Argentina. Uh, You're in Argentina today. Your president was just elected. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Argentina.
1: So um, I lead the team at the Apprendal Agenda Reading Program, and we are working with schools, both um, public and private schools in Argentina. We have been for the last four years. So I'm visiting classrooms, basically, and I love doing that. I think it keeps me grounded and it keeps me very close to the teachers and the children and and all the work we do here.
0: And how many schools do you work with in Argentina?
1: So we right now are working with more than 70 independent schools. Many of those are parochial, Laura. I don't know if you know, but in Argentina, um, parochial schools are very important. I would say um, 30% of the student body in the country attends parochial schools, and they're a great option for uh, public schools that are sometimes uh, not performing well. And then um, we are currently working in a project with the city of Buenos Aires with uh, 25 public schools there. But we have worked with different projects in different provinces throughout the last four years or so. Uh, have seen a lot uh, across the country.
0: And I would doubt that most Americans really understand the situation in Argentina. Um, and so I know that last night I heard on the news that it, there's possibly a 40% poverty rate. And you were telling me that about half of all children don't attend school. Tell me, you know, what, what is it like in these schools? What is it like for these teachers that you're helping?
1: So I always say, Laura, that teachers are my heroes, and I really mean it. When they're in the trenches here in public schools in Argentina, they're doing it out of love and passion. Um, They usually have to work two jobs to make ends meet, and that means that they attend or they have a classroom in the morning from 8 to 12 in one establishment or one school building, and then they take public transportation To attend or be or teach in another school one to five Um, kids only go to school half a day they don't go to school all day that's already um, um, a big issue in addition they have to make sure that the kids eat when they go to school Um, and and they have to deal with absenteeism i mean when we did a project with haskins labs and a local university here a research project in 2018 we realized and it wasn't one of the things we were looking for but we realized that on average, kids attend 101 days of school, and the statutory days—the days they should have attended—were 180 in any given school year. So kids don't go to school, and that is a combination of there's no public transportation provided by the government. Kids have to take public transportation. There's no school bus um, system, um, and so there's also teacher absenteeism. And when teachers are absent, kids are sent home. So then parents get discouraged, and if they are having a complicated day before they go to work, they rather not even risk it. Um, if it rains, children usually don't go to school because it's just harder to move around in bu- by bus and, and, and get out of a very poor neighborhood. The slums are usually very muddy. Um, I mean, there's so many factors that you would never think would be barriers to attending school that become very real here. So um, teachers are heroes. When they show up, they're ready to give it their all. And um, and um, you know I've seen just really miracles at work uh, out of and sheer determination.
0: And they're using Aprendiendo as their as their reading curriculum,
1: right? And so they're using legend as their reading curriculum. And I think the two things that they appreciate the most about it, because they don't have it usually in what the you know the government provides them, is one professional development when they join us and when they start using Aprendiendo the first year. We spend at least 20 hours with the teachers of professional development. And I think that's a luxury that they're not used to and they appreciate so deeply. Uh, Teacher colleges are not as, um, if you want thorough as they should be. And so they suddenly feel equipped to really be effective in the classroom. These teachers usually have 30 children per classroom and they don't have a co-teacher. So if you have knowledge and, 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 and some guidance on how to best teach you suddenly become a lot more effective and you're not dealing with the chaos, um, in the dark if you want. Um, and then the second thing that they appreciate is that they actually get materials, you know, books and, and, and skills books and, and materials that will help them in their day provide this direct instruction and, um, and really meet the students where they are and personalized instruction as well. So those two things make a huge difference for teachers and, um, And and it's wonderful. You should also know that in public schools, especially Wi-Fi is very spotty and not just public schools, but there it is. Because they work more than one school, they don't have a desk in their classroom. Everything they carry is in their backpacks with them at all times. So, you know, using technology is a big challenge for teachers as a tool for teaching in the classroom. Um, And so materials, paper materials, it sounds very old fashioned, but it's very effective for them and they truly appreciate it.
0: It's interesting because so much of what you're saying might sound foreign to an American teacher, right? Like kids not having a school bus, for example, or not going to school because it's raining. But this idea of not being equipped with the right teaching materials and professional development is very real right now in the United States because of our flip from balanced literacy to science of reading. So many teachers were not getting what they needed. When we were doing you know the balanced literacy thing, and so let's talk about what you're doing in the United States, which is the path reading program, um, which i've heard of plenty of times it's at all of the conferences. Tell us a little bit about path and your role there
1: so so things really you know this work for me really started with PAF um, I met when I took a course um, on multisensory reading instruction at the Windward Institute when one of my sons was attending windward windward is a school for children with learning disabilities in White Plains in, the New-, in New York state. And um, I took one of the classes with the author of PAF, Phyllis Burton. And she, um, it was because after I took that class, they that realized that one, um, there was no reading instruction methodology or program in Spanish that had a methodology to PAF. So I approached her initially to work in creating and writing a curriculum in Spanish. But once we met and we embarked on that um, journey, she and I said, you know what, we also, let's just also work together at PAF. And what we did in PAF, it has been a, it's a program that's been around for 40 years, but we really rewrote it um, to, um, you know, bring in the latest research to update the materials so that they are more culturally responsive to the population of children and students and teachers in the United States. And to really have, um, we do the strategic plan on how to reach more schools across the country. And that's, we've started doing that work in 2018. And it's been, you know, the second part of this journey, and it's been fascinating. Most of our fastest growing district, you know, uh, state right now is California. PAF traditionally was always a a program very focused in the tri-state area, because that's where the authors were. Um, But um, the growth in the last few years across the country has been really exciting. And... You know, a lot of it is thanks for the awareness and the that is now at all state levels because of Emily Hanford and you know the science of reading, if you want hyper movement. But a lot of it is also because the pandemic made it very clear that uh, we needed to change the way we were teaching reading if we wanted kids to succeed. So it's been a fascinating journey, and I think I would add to that, Laura, that then as a result, once schools and districts that have bilingual programs know. That we have a sister program called Aprendo Legendo in Spanish that has also been part of the work we've been doing and bringing in uh, um, together with PAF.
0: Okay let me ask you a few more things about PAF and then I want to talk again about Aprendo Legendo. So there's a couple of things that I think really jumped out to me when I was doing some research on PAF and, and the schools that are using it and the first thing that I noticed is on the website it says that it is scientifically proven as an effective reading program. And I feel like these are words you see everywhere right now. And so I'm curious when you say that, what does that mean at PAF? What, it, what is the research behind that statement? And I guess I would say like, what can teachers apply when they're looking at other programs that kind of have that same lingo and what, is it, what, what, what should they think that actually means?
1: So, I, you know, I think um, the Reading League has come out with a rubric to really explain what that means when teachers are thinking about reviewing programs and really understanding and assessing if they are sensitive, you know, if, if they're based on uh, practices or they bring in practices to the classroom that have been um, tested, recommended by research, uh, that's a great rubric because I think you know it, it's not what we say; it's what the Reading League says, or other people or communities that have come together and really uh, thought this through. So. Um, so I, I think that's a great place for teachers to go if that was your question because I kind of I lost a bit of of, of what you were asking me.
0: <laughs> well I guess what it but, like what does it mean to you like when you feel confident okay. saying that have you just gone through the rubric or is there more to that information about why you're willing to no, say that? No there's a lot
1: more to that information Sorry, now, now I'm, I'm 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 getting the full gist of the question. So for PAF you know PAF has been used in schools for many years now and although they haven't had the luxury of doing a randomized control research um, um, pro, you know project like we did for the parental agenda because we had access to public schools in Buenos Aires and we can talk about that. They have had consistent results from districts who have reported you know um, their reading scores over all these many years that show that the kids that had that were getting instruction in reading K to 2 or even in the intervention um, classrooms, you know self-contained, um, reported um, scores when measured with whatever um, assessment the districts were using, Dibbles you know whatever it is that the districts are using at that time that were at grade level or above um, if they had instruction with PAF compared to other schools in the same districts that didn't. And we have a lot of data. we call it more lower case studies because they're not you know w- w- it wasn't a randomized control um, research project, which is the gold standard. Um, access is usually the biggest barrier to doing those um, um, projects, and that's why I'm always in touch with researchers like Claude Goldenberg or the Haskins Labs. Because when the opportunity comes, when there's a grant, we want to be there, and we are actually working with um, a project on that that hopefully will be wrapping up in in a year and and we'll be able to publish results. But but short of that, what we have is many many years of case studies that show that consistent. Um, a su- success story for the schools and the children that were in the program versus schools in the same district or state that were not in the program. So wow, that's, that's where a- we can bring our confidence. And um, for, P- for our parental agenda, the Spanish program confidence comes from, because we actually did a research study uh, with those characteristics with um, a local university, Universidad Favaloro in Argentina and um, Haskins Labs. And, um, and we're working on a second one right now with the city of Buenos Aires.
0: Okay. And when you say randomized control trial in, in, in Argentina, you have kids who are actually getting access to yes. everything from friend Liendo. Their teachers are getting the professional development. They're using the paper materials. And then you also have children who are in the same school Not. or in the same district who are getting no access. So what? in the
1: same district. So the first study we did okay. in Argentina was in 2019. The The province of Buenos Aires at that time had a um, program called the Red de Escuelas. It was a network of schools. There were 2,000 schools, and they chose 70 of those 2,000 schools to receive Aprendo Leyendo. We trained 450 teachers. We gave them 20 hours of professional development. 10,000 students participated uh, were in this group of 70 schools that received Aprendo Leyendo. And then out of the 70, we picked a group of 300 students that um, were going to be assessed three times that year, with a very um, detailed and thorough battery of tests selected by Haskins. And then we picked the same amount of students that were matched through a very rigorous process out of those 2,000 schools that were not receiving Apprenda Legenda but were part of its network. They were receiving other things, right? Because that's also important. And then we matched them and we compared them. And at the end of the first year, um, the group that received Apprenda Legenda did statistically significantly better in reading comprehension at the sentence level than the other group. Um, uh-huh. As you know uh, from Argentina, um, at the end of that first year, the, the project was supposed to, and the research was supposed to go on for two years. Two or three years is the ideal. Um, but then the election, ele- there were elections that November and the, <laughs> the government lost. And so the new Minister of, Econ- of Education for the province of Buenos Aires came in and told me, we're not going to do anything the, that the prior uh, administration was doing. We're shutting it all down. So they shut the network of schools. And however, I would say that of all of our teachers in those 70 schools, they all continue to use Apprento Legendo undercover. That's why when you ask me how many schools are using Apprento Legendo, I know many more. It's just that officially um, they're not supposed to. Uh, but yes, so we actually had great data, only first year data. We're now working on a second project with the city of Buenos Aires. Um, it's a bigger sample. We have 700 kids using Apprento Legendo and we just collected the four, um, data for T4. Actually, we're finishing this week, and um, I'm hoping that the results will be even better just because we got two years of instruction, which is usually what it takes. It takes um, three years for a student to get through the sequence in PAF, and two years through a Legenda, and that's just because English is so much more difficult.
0: Okay, and I think okay. you've hit on so many things that I want to mention. So the first <laughs> is like, it's it's true. It's so, it's so incredible what you did with your RCT because it is incredibly difficult to get access to children, access to schools, the matching process of finding a child in two different places who is in some way an academic equivalent so that you can see a real change in one or the other. Um, it's just absolutely incredible. And I, and I just want to highlight that, that that is a gold standard and how impressive those results are um, and, and how lovely it is to have you explain it to all of us and to educators who don't understand. Like when we say randomized control trial, it's like one kid is getting it, one isn't. And in, in just about every way, there's a very like real similarities that make it a fair comparison, right? Um, the other thing that I think you mentioned that I want to ask you about is this government intervention, because again, it, in some ways it is so foreign in the U.S. However, in some districts, it is so similar that we, a new superintendent comes in and everything must leave. Everything goes out. We, we switch everything out. And it is just tumult for teachers. Um, is that the same thing in, in Buenos Aires? Or are they just used to it? And how, what was that experience really like? I think
1: for you? it's the same way everywhere, Laura. I think that's a very common um, trade of people jo- you know, taking on new jobs and trying to make a difference and leave their legacy. Sometimes it's also ideology. You know, people don't want to, just because of ideology's sake, they don't want to have anything to do with the prior people that had a different way of looking at things. And it's really heartbreaking because I think that it's not just the children that are left in the middle, right? You know, if something was working and you had better results than you've ever had before, and you could show it, right? Because sometimes then why toss it just to bring in your new... Um, idea, or just to differentiate, you know, difference yourself from, you know, the ideas of the prior minister of education. It's just really terrible. But I think it's not just the children, it's the teachers. It's exhausting for the teachers. And I see this happening in the U.S. in every district where we work with PAF. And that's part of the reason why it's so hard to have randomized control studies, right? Um, nobody wants to commit the time. You need two to three years. You have to have a group of your students that are in a control wait list. Right? um because they're your control maybe the first year the second you'll give them the intervention eventually but they have to you know and that's very unpopular um, for different districts and whatnot and rightly so that's why you know um but at the same time I think there's uh two things happening um it's exhausting for the teachers they are constantly adjusting to new teacher training they're supposed to learn it and deploy it with success the first year and if something doesn't work, The superintendent is ready to toss it and then bring the next one or pile up the next one just to solve something that is not being, uh, you know, wasn't fixed quickly and fast and in a popular way the first year. That creates a lot of teacher fatigue and a lot of skepticism from the teachers because then when you bring something that actually will help them, they just don't have the energy to try it again. Um, So we always say to districts, you know, this is very true on PAF. To the superintendents, if you're not ready to really commit for three years, if you're not ready to give it time for the teachers to learn it, time in the classroom for for them to deploy it and get used to it and have it under the belt and be successful, even more successful the second year, if you're not going to measure and really pay attention to the data, then don't bother. Use somebody else. We always say that. Or don't pile us up with something that is half working because it's just bad use of your resources and your time and the teacher's time.
0: And do, most pe- and do you have people turn away? Do they say, okay, never mind, it's too much work. We don't want to do the work. Or for the most part, do they hear that and say, it must be worth it?
1: I think for the most part, when you're candid and they, they are like, okay, maybe, I, you know, they're, they're at least are candid and honest and they're not trying to sell us that it's going to be easy and an easy fix. And you're going to, so I think that creates a lot of credibility for our team. I also think because our team is fully comprised of teachers that either were in the classroom until recently, or um, they don't know how to, you know, to, you know, there's a phrase in Spanish where you're selling one thing for the other, you know, selling cat for a dog. They're very honest. And so they just can't, if you want, um, um, hide the facts. Either you commit and you make this effort worth it for the teachers, or just don't even bother with us. And we don't want to spend time in your district either, you know? And so I think that creates credibility, and then it also creates a lot of confidence from the teachers on us that we are, they, we understand what they're going through. And that's also a, a key part of having teachers in our team. We're all teachers. I mean, except for me, I would say everybody else is a teacher in my team. And and then the teachers relate to them right away. You know, every training, every meeting when they say, you know, I taught, oh yeah, I taught in Chicago public schools. Oh yeah, I taught in White Plains. I taught in Connecticut. I they they just immediately uh, connect, and I think that makes a big difference.
0: Um, I think that definitely makes a big difference for teachers. Uh, it's funny I was recently rereading the old Larry Cuban book, How Do I Fix It? Um, about you know change in schools, and one of the first things he says is that change, you know, creating change in schools takes a lot of risk, and it's risk for the people who have had so many initiatives hurled at them. And I, I can't get that word out of my head, the word hurled. That so often it is just thrown at them. And I think even the way you're talking about it now of like this is supposed to be a partnership with teachers, give them time, work with them. It is just such a huge shift that I'm sure teachers really appreciate. I also want to hear about one of the things that you really quickly mentioned just a second ago, which is that PAF is a three-year program, and, um, but Aprendo Liendo, its Spanish partner is only two years. Can we talk a little bit about that and, and why it's built like that?
1: Well, you know, English is a very opaque language where vowels, uh, the five vowels make many different sounds when combined with other vowels or other consonants. Spanish is very transparent, so um, getting through the skills, the the basic skills of the alphabetic code and, you know, um, grammar skills, syntax skills, morphology, it's just so much quicker and easier in Spanish, right? Um, It's also a syllabic language, the Spanish language, so once you learn those vowels, which all make only one sound, which is incredible, um, and, then, and then you know how to combine them with consonants, it's pretty, you know, decoding is easier. That doesn't mean that, you know, learning to read doesn't use the same process or it doesn't take the same effort or that fluency can be a challenge or the length of the words, you know, Spanish becomes full of adjectives, words become very long, very fast. Um, so there's other complexities, but you know the codes are very, you know, the way the code is uh, built. If you want, is very different. So yes, you know, on a uh, you know a, K, a group of students starting with PAF and K will probably get through it at the beginning of third grade or at the end of second grade, depending on the students. You know, and we also say you have to pace instruction on where your students are. You can't, you know, building on quicksand is not what we're hoping for. What we're hoping for is very solid foundations, and so. We teach teachers how to really, well, we're constantly assessing too, but also teach teachers how to really understand that and pace the instruction accordingly. But in Spanish, it's um it's fluency and automaticity that take longer. It's not just the initial decoding and blending. So they just are different. I was talking to a teacher in Texas recently, and she was telling me how. Some districts are trying to say, okay, if you're teaching the short sound of the letter A this week, you do it in both languages at the same time. Of course, it's very different to do it in both languages. And so, you know, it it just wasn't connecting. You just can't think about it that way. And that's why the two programs are, in a way, independent. There's a lot of synergies in their um, routines um, in how you transfer skills that are very transferable in the cognates, but there's not... The, the, the sequences don't look the same and the pace should not look the same.
0: So um, at one point in my career, I taught bilingual kindergarten. And the story that I always tell to my engineers when I'm talking about this is when I walked in on my first day to teach you know, half in English and half in Spanish, and I was the only kindergarten class like that. We had an all Spanish class, we had an all English class, and then we had my little whatever it was. <laughs> and I will never <laughs> forget that they handed me a stack this big of materials in English. And like this in Spanish, I had you know it was yeah. like, and and the answer was we'll just translate it, <laughs> and I was like, I don't think it really works like that, but we'll see what we can, you know, like we'll work it out. It, when teachers are, I think I heard you say in California, people are using both programs. Are they feeling like they're getting real resources in both equivalent and, and, and exact and what they need, even if it's not the same?
1: Absolutely, and it's in California in New York City. In New York City, we have a lot of. Um, schools that have dual language programs where both PAF and Apprentice are working together. You know, I think the research is pretty clear that there's a benefit for native Spanish speakers, for example, to learn to read in their native language at. And simultaneously learn to speak and read in the second language that they're learning, in this case, English. So that is inequivocal. Where I see the challenge, Laura, is not just in the materials, which I do think that teachers, that's one of the big reliefs when they see both apprentice and the PA, they're like, oh my gosh, this is like, this makes sense. And I'm feeling as equipped for both. But the, 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 the really the, the big question for me is, what is the best model, right, to bring to the classroom? should everybody be doing Spanish and English on the same day so that you structure the day um, so that in that kindergarten class, you have a block of LA in Spanish and a block in English, and then you coordinate them so that you're not doing handwriting in both. Cause that's not necessary. It's the same alphabet, but you know, it really makes in a way it makes sense. Should they be doing every other day, which is what most schools that are in a 50, 50 program do. And I, um, I'm not sure that's the best model. I've seen schools do every other week a different language. And that is also a huge challenge. When you're in kindergarten learning to read in either language, if you take a week off from one language, the week when you come back is like coming back from vacation. So that's really hard for teachers. So I think we still need to do a lot of research in the U.S. and which bilingual model for implement- implementation model is the most beneficial to students. I think there's no discussion of whether learning both languages is beneficial, but how and how do you bring it into the classroom is still, um, I think, very debated. And I see many different models across the country.
0: We have a partner district in Texas that has 14 elementary schools and five different bilingual models to your point. So they have one doing halfway through the day, one doing every other day. And I would be curious to see them do some research around what's working because they've kind of got a similar population doing it different ways. Because I do think this is a question that a lot of people are trying to answer right now. One, like what would work? And then two, what can we staff seems to be the other like layer to this. um, Exactly. That, is informing the decisions probably even more than it should be. Um, okay, I wanna ask one more question about PAF just because you mentioned it really quickly and then I wanna talk about you. You mentioned handwriting, that you don't need to have handwriting because it's in both languages. And I think handwriting is probably something that's more way more prominent on PAF's website than I expected for a reading program. Uh, is yeah. there is there intentionality behind that? Is there something that we're not talking about with handwriting that's really important?
1: Yes, I think handwriting is, it, it, everything we do in PAF supports learning to read. We don't do handwriting for the sake of handwriting alone or in isolation, but the way it works, and it's true in both programs, um, but the way it works is if you teach a sound, first you teach the students the sound of the sound, then how to write it, and then how to read it. So before the children read um, words, a list of words, for example, with a new sound, they've learned to write the motto pattern, and then they've spelled it in a spelling dictation. And so it's, we teach you reading through writing. Um, one of the first things that teachers get really exciting about excited about is that the handwriting improves substantially very fast.
0: Okay. So in a minute, I want to switch talking about you, but you mentioned something that I noticed when I was on the PAF website and that I've heard is that you know, handwriting has a really prominent place. And I think with science of reading, we don't hear about handwriting very often. And so I'm curious, is that intentional for PAF to be emphasizing handwriting? And is there something that we should be talking about when it comes to handwriting?
1: So in PAF, and in Apprentice in the two, but in PAF, um, we teach, when we teach a new skill, we teach the students to, for example, if it's in the sound of a letter, the letter C, we teach them how to, what the, you know, we show them the promoter pattern, we teach them how to uh, say the sound. Then we teach them how to write it, and that's where handwriting comes in. Then how to spell it, and only then how to read it in a word list, and then in a, you know in in context and, and in a chapter book. So handwriting is instrumental to reading, to teaching reading, and we t- we teach reading through spelling and handwriting. Teachers get very exciting about handwriting because it, it improves very very fast. You know that, that's what direct instruction does. It's not that kids have Uh, you know, some kids do, but uh, most of the time, um, the kids had terrible handwriting is because they've never been taught. Our handwriting instruction is very, very structured and there's immediate feedback. So we're avoiding those, um, if you want, um, vices that then kids, you know, it's really hard for them to break. Um, And and, and it just supports the reading instruction. Um, And we almost have to rein in the teachers um, because they get so excited about it, they can spend hours doing it. And we're like, no, 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 this is not a handwriting program but it is a very instrumental and important part of learning to read and uh, it has amazing results. Also, we think it's, it sets the foundation for good writing instruction. You know, you can't really um, write and express your ideas and put them down in paper or in the computer if you don't know how to, um, to write properly. And so that's a very important part of it too. But Mainly supporting the reading instruction.
0: It's really fun to talk to you because you have so much information. I mean, at one point we're talking about morphines and we're talking about, um, you know, different programs across the country and across the globe. And now we're talking about handwriting, but not that long ago, you said you're not a teacher and you're not by trade. So tell us, you know, where, where did you start your journey and how did you end up here?
1: So I graduated from law school in Argentina in Buenos Aires in 96. And in 96, um, you know, back then we had some years of a lot of, if you want, um, prosperity or initial prosperity. There was a lot of foreign investment in Argentina, companies were being privatized. So I went to work for a law firm right, you know, right during law school and then after law school doing project financing for oil and gas. And then was um, hired um, to work for a law firm in New York when I, in, in 97, and I came to do project financing for oil and gas for them. I worked for Pedevesa, you know, those who are our clients in Venezuela for many years. I mean, and then I traveled to Qatar. I mean, I can tell you it was a really intense career and super interesting. I sat for the bar in New York as well, went to law school just to do some equivalences here to Columbia University. And then when I had my second son, I have three sons, um, I took some time off to be at home. You know, I used to work really hard and travel a lot. And my husband did too. So it was just hard to have two people on airplanes and and two little boys at home. So I took some time off and I thought, well, you know, I'm a smart woman, I guess. um, And I'm going to be home now. These kids are going to be reading Harry Potter by the end of first grade. I mean, right? And, And my son Antonio, my second son, you know, the word cat was as hard to read it the first day of first grade as it was on the last day of first grade. I'm like, what is going on? So I discovered the reading could be hard. For some, it clearly wasn't for me when I grew up. For, for some students, it can't. And no matter how hard you try and how, how hard he tried, he was just not getting what he the right instruction. I mean, he just wasn't. So we were very lucky that we could send him to the Windward School. Um, and then I realized, uh, I guess I first was grateful, incredibly grateful for our opportunities, but then I was incredibly angry. How is it possible That this is the way, there's a way to teach children to read that is the right way, that is effective, that will allow them to achieve their potential. And then every other child in the States, whether they have a learning disability or not, is not getting it. And then I went down and looked down at South America and I thought, wait, that's a whole language continent. It's not just like a district or two or a school. And and I just that anger became, wait, I need to learn more. So I started taking classes and courses where I could. At the Winward Institute at SUNY Purchase, and um, and then I met Phyllis, and I, I, I never went back to the law. So yes, I I think I bring to the work very fresh pair of eyes because I am not a teacher, but I appreciate teachers, and 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 so you know I think we've made a good team, and um, I've loved it. It's my life's work now.
0: This story is so common of people. It's my mother's story, not for me, but my sister couldn't read, um, of, yeah. you know, finding their way to science of reading, finding their way to find out that there actually is a way to teach kids how to read because our ti- our children are not reading, right? And yes. um, I think it's going to resonate with so many people. You keep saying the name Phyllis, and so I want you to tell us who she is because on the PAF website, it says it's a program for teachers by teachers. So tell us about Phyllis, tell us about the founders, and then how, how, do, you, how do you kind of like fit in here?
1: Yeah, so... Phyllis Burton and Eileen Perman were teachers by training. Um, They uh, were teaching in different schools. They taught in different school districts, public school districts in Wilton, Connecticut. But they met in White Plains, in the White Plains School District. And they were just very smart teachers. They were fellows of the Orton Academy. They had worked in... um, at the Einstein University in different grad programs. And, you know, just because they were curious and they wanted to learn more. And they wrote this program because they were trying to solve for those kids that couldn't learn to read in spite of the best efforts, right? And, um, and, and they wrote PAF based on that experience. And then from then on, they went to train many, many teachers in the tri-state area. And they never had really a model to scale their knowledge, their program. And, and create materials. They just, you know, dev- devoted their life to, to training teachers in that area they, um, and, and working for school districts in this area. And so when I met them, that's what we did. We said, you know, a little bit, what I brought in is like the will and the energy if you want to say, let's take it other places in the country, right? And, um, and, and share this amazing tool with other teachers. So that's what we've been doing since um, I came, I joined their team, maybe one in 2018. Eileen is now retired and Phyllis is still part of the team. And uh, it's been just a fascinating journey. But again, I think Laura, it goes back to these um, heroes, all these teachers that I've met, you know, in Argentina, in the States, in, in other countries in South America, they just are determined to make, um, to give these kids the opportunity to be learners, you know? and they'll do whatever it takes. If if they need to learn a new method, if they need to create it, if they need to write it, they'll do it. Um, And that's just always um, just amazing to watch. That's why I think uh, they they deserve our utmost support and admiration, but also they need tools, they need information, they need need to be taken seriously and uh, well-equipped.
0: Okay, so it started with two teachers in New York and now how many states have the PAF program in at least one school?
1: Oh, oh, at least. Um, we have 19 states in at least, at least one school. Uh, and it's really exciting. Um, we have, you know, the other day we, 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 we started working in a district in North Dakota. We were so excited. We hadn't been there before. Um, and I think we all feel we're only getting started. So it's just really, really exciting. And as um, I said, I hope you'll hear from us participating in you know, research projects with researchers. We're working on all of that because as you can tell, that's kind of, um, I have a passion for that because I, I think it's really important.
0: Um, before the show, we were talking about how small the world is. It's so funny you set, brought North Dakota in because you and I started, before we started the show, we were talking about how I used to live in Argentina and we have this lovely yes. Argentina connection. But uh, North Dakota as a state just bought our, the, Amira, the program I work for, for every school in the state. And one of the greatest joys mm-hmm. for us has been these rural communities that don't Second. usually have access to anything. And the state has kind of gone out and done the right thing and said, if you want it, we'll pay, we'll pay for it. And it's just really great to see exactly what you're saying. Teachers are hungry. These teachers and these like one room school, I'm telling you, tiny, tiny school districts, tiny, tiny schools are like, I just want my kids to read. It is so cool to see them um, just adopt new things and, and do cool things. So what, what a cool connection. So when did Aprendo Liendo become part of the packet, like part of what PAF was doing?
1: So, as I said, we still have two teams that, you know, we have schools, for example, we have schools in Nebraska that only have agenda and they use okay. for their English instruction different programs. Most of our schools that use agenda also use PAF, but that's not, they're not, a, you know, it doesn't have to be a package. Um, but I think what happened was very organic with ApprendaLegendo. Once people know PAF, they quickly realize there's out there another website that looks very similar and um, and over oh, here at the conferences or whatever it is and you know we've started with a small pot of schools that we already had a relationship with through PAF. They said please let us try it. I have to tell you Laura, um, we took we thought about it very seriously you know because there's a lack of clarity in what is the best implementation model for bilingual instruction. I really do think that there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, I wasn't sure this was the right thing to do you know I'm very clear that Aprendo Legendo is to the utmost benefit of any native Spanish speaker in South America that's easy the learning to read in the language that they you know learn to talk when they you know from from the beginning but um, I, it took me a while I really had to feel comfortable that this was the in the best interest of the students and the schools and the districts but I think um, we've had amazing results and um, and the feedback has been um, really important. But as I I said, I'm always looking for that research, group of researchers that would like to do research on what model would be best and compare different models. I
0: think think you've definitely hit on something that would be really valuable to a lot of districts and schools who are trying to figure this out for sure. Um, When you think about your work and you think about all of the teachers that you've met, is there... Like a moment that that has meant the most to you, that you're like this. This is the this is the most. But like you never went back to law. You're you're you've moved on from your own children. Like where where is that moment for you now that you?
1: I was in a school outside of a, in I would say in the outskirts, but really like really on the border of a very big slum in the province of Buenos Aires. It's called the Itatí La Villa de Itatí, and it's a tough tough place and. Um, they were part of the group um, that participated of this pilot in the province of Buenos Aires, and they were one of the schools that was an intervention school. And we went to visit the principal who was just a miracle worker. I mean, really. And she told me a story that stuck with me so profoundly um, about learning and reading and going to school and attending school. She said, you know, there's two programs i have a very little budget and have very little resources and you should have seen the place but there's two programs the two things i'll never let go one is the thank you the reading program she said and if i you know what she did she was worried that they wouldn't give her the skills books for the following year so she had the kids um write in black pencil very lightly so she could erase for the next year of course we found her a donor and we I, so that's the kind of person she was um and the kids get it right like just you know necessity is but the second thing is that I'll never let go is we do a trip in sixth grade. So um, elementary school finishes in sixth grade in Argentina. And in that trip, we do an overnight camping. Um, we go to an overnight uh, camping you know, place and the kids get to sleep in their own bed for the first time in their life. And I never, and she said, if, if they get to sixth grade and they go to the camping trip and they have, it's not camping, it's like a camp, but um, they have a bunk and they have their own bed for one night, I know they can imagine the possibilities that an education can bring them, because you can't imagine what you don't know, she said. And then they stay in the school system. If they can read and they know that if you do, you know, if you can achieve your potential, maybe you can have your own bed for the rest of your life. Because kids in the shanty towns don't have their own bed. They sleep with siblings or, you know, and so that story from her just, has stuck with me this was in 2019 and um it's been the fuel that got us through the pandemic and if there's any challenge I I think about her sylvia silvia's her name and I'm just like I can deal with that one uh, because <laughs> it's pretty impressive i think but her vision also, right
0: i think this is something we're also hearing from especially inner city schools is that because so many models went kind of like this rote memory, kill and drill, testing is everything, that kids stopped having experiences as part of school. And a lot of leaders are kind of going back and saying they need the field trips. They need to see what's possible. They need to see why learning matters in order for it to really see the value. So I think what you're saying will really resonate. Um, Let me ask you this. You have seen, I think, some of probably the hardest and worst schools in North and South America. And you've seen teachers who are struggling to get the things they need what is the thing that gives you hope and makes you believe like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be okay and we're gonna get this program out and and people are gonna read
1: just teachers they just if you (laughs) give them opportunity to learn and if you give them the tools they just go with it you know and and it's just amazing to watch and so as long as they're out there everything will be okay
0: (laughs) all right i can tell that you're running low on time and so am i so let's go ahead and do our five questions that we ask every single guest um, and so the first one is the, 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 podcast is called more than a test. Um, and it's called that for a reason at Amira, but every guest hears it as something different. So when you heard more than a test, what did it mean to you?
1: Um, that'll be, I, I always think that more is, you know, not necessarily better. So that'll be, it won't be a test, but it would just be an experience. So I, I think it was, so thank you for that.
0: That's awesome. Uh, We ask everyone to tell us a lit moment. So a moment of you and a book that changed your life or is your happy place or something that you go back to. Can you think of a time that you were with a book that was really meaningful for you?
1: So in eighth grade, I read To Kill a Mockingbird. I was in school in Argentina and somehow that was the book chosen in English by our English teacher. Um, And it changed, I think, my life about reading because it gave me a window to a culture and a history that I didn't really understand about the United States. And, and to empathy, I think. And so, yeah, that's one of my favorite books of all time because of that.
0: Okay, this one's going to be a little bit of a swing for us, but the, a piece of technology you love.
1: Well, I love podcasts.
0: <laughs>
1: I really do. Thank I really you. do. Like, I've, I've missed, you know, 20 exits on a highway listening to any of the many podcasts that I listen to. And it's just, just such a happy place. And, you know. I all right, one podcast we person. should all one podcast you think we should all listen to? Um, well, it's all just a story, but I'm sure everybody has already. Um, yeah. But you know, another one that my son loves and he makes me listen to a lot is Meat Eaters. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's just hilarious. And, and I've heard stories about the Midwest and of the country that I just love, so.
0: That's awesome. All right, best advice you've ever been given?
1: The sooner you don't care what people think about you, the better, you know, and just follow your heart. But yeah.
0: That's awesome. I love that. And um,
1: one book you think everyone should read? I lost the last one, Laura.
0: I'm going to ask it again because I couldn't hear you. One book you think everyone should read?
1: The River of Doubt is Teddy Rose by Candice Millar. It's Teddy Roosevelt's um, exploration of the Rio da Dúvida, which is one of the branch you know, arms of the Amazon. And it's just such a fascinating book about how Brazilian explorers, uh, explorers from the United States came together to map this uh, huge affluent of the Amazon and the things that they went through. It's just unbelievable. So, oh, that's
0: I, I haven't read it, but I'm putting it on my list. Um, I definitely have read Do a it. couple of it. We'll but... love it. Okay, I will. Then I'll put it on my list. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for joining us from Argentina and thank you for sharing your stories. This has been incredible. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week and thanks for joining.